Well, good morning, especially to our guests this morning. Thanks for being here. Uh, if you are among us as a guest, if this is your first time or you've been here several times, want to welcome you and uh, hope you feel welcomed by our congregation this morning. Um, thanks for spending part of your uh, Resurrection Sunday with us this morning. And uh, if you have not been here, um, we have been making our way through First and Second Samuel throughout this year of 2023. And we recently paused in that First Samuel series to begin a, a short series on the Psalms because David, who's a central figure in both First and Second Samuel, wrote a number of the Psalms uh, during the periods in which the history of First and Second Samuel records. So we've discussed in previous weeks a couple of those Psalms, and we come to a third one this particular Sunday, Psalm 34, which fits well not only with the history of David's life, but also the resurrection of Christ and the, the importance and benefits of the resurrection that come to us as believers as well. So we've been considering one of two psalms last week in uh, surrounding the events of 1 Samuel chapter 21. And Larry mentioned it in his reading that 1 Samuel 21 deals with David kind of trying to get out of the hands of his enemies. He's retreated from Israel into the land of the Philistines, which were his arch enemies. Remember, he killed a giant named Goliath, who was a prince or warrior of the Philistines. And he's retreated there because he's, in, he's been being pursued by the king of Israel, Saul. Having found out that David is going to soon take the throne of Israel, Saul is furious and wants to take David's life. And so David's on the run, and he's been writing a number of these psalms as he runs around Israel and outside of Israel to escape Saul's attempts to kill him. And at one point, he lands in the land of the Philistines. He becomes, he pretends to be crazy and insane, and the king of the Philistines lets him go, Bimelech, and says, just get out of here, you can go. And David writes two psalms about that particular instance. The first is Psalm 56 that we considered last week, and the other is Psalm 34, which we consider this week. We saw last week how the experience of David's terror led him to express trust in God and expect triumph from his enemies and over his enemies. And the Lord did bring him out of that devastating situation. He did rescue him. He did prevent him from being killed. While he was trapped in enemy custody, David pretended to be insane. He was released. And then finding himself in a crisis, he pleaded with the Lord to deliver him, and God rescued him from his enemies. So we come to the second psalm about that very incident this morning. In Psalm 74, David expresses his gratitude to God for delivering him. This psalm, as we just read, is a psalm of celebration. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm expressing great thanksgiving and gratitude to God for his grace. There's not a note of bad news in this entire psalm. It's a celebration of God's grace through and through. And the concluding words of Psalm 56 that we read last week and considered last week are a fitting lead-in to Psalm 34. Remember how Psalm 56 ended? It said, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. In Psalm 34, David has already experienced that deliverance from death, which was a, a resurrection of sorts. We'll come back to that theme in a moment. And he renders in Psalm 34 a 22-verse thank offering. He says in Psalm 56, I'm going to render a thank offering to you. I must 
keep my vows. I must express gratitude to you for what you have done. And in this psalm, he does just that. Each verse of Psalm 34 is based on a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, perhaps for memorization purposes or help in that regard. And so it takes the form of what we call an acrostic poem. Several of the Psalms focus like that. But it's, nevertheless, it's written to express gratitude for God's salvation from death. And so this Resurrection Sunday morning, brothers and sisters, we have many reasons as well to give thanks to God. Chief among them, because of Christ's death and resurrection, we too can sing with David that God has delivered our souls from death, our feet from stumbling, that we also might walk before God in the light of life, the light of eternal life. As Paul writes about our coming resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, we read, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, that is, our physical bodies that are perishable right now die, and we receive a glorified body in the resurrection to come, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But how are we to respond? Thank offering, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. David was delivered from death. What was his response? A thank offering to God in Psalm 34. We are delivered from eternal death into eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What should be our response? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the proper response to our coming resurrection is to offer thanksgiving to God now. And that's what we're going to do this entire sermon. Just for the next few moments together, we are going to worship God in gratitude, in thanksgiving, and using Psalm 34 as our own thank offering, our own song of praise to the God who through the death and resurrection of his son has delivered our souls from death that we might walk before God in the light of life. So here's my goal this morning. We're going to look at four sections of Psalm 34, and I want to show us four things briefly in each section. In each section, we're going to see, first of all, an explanation. That is, what was David's response in Psalm 34 to being delivered from death? Secondly, we're going to make a connection to Christ's resurrection and the response of the people who witnessed his resurrection. Thirdly, I want to illustrate it to see how this response can play out in someone's life. And then finally, I want to apply it and ask the question, why should it make a difference for any of us? So explanation, connection, illustration, and application for each one of these four sections of Psalm 34. You ready? All right, let's get to work. Four responses. Magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. The first response to David being delivered from death is worship. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Let's read those again. Psalm 34, verses 1 and 2. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. See, David begins this psalm where he should, with a declaration of praise to God. Five words are used to describe his worship here. Bless. Praise, boast, magnify, and exalt. David doesn't have enough words to describe the goodness of God in delivering him from death. 
So he has to bless the Lord. But not only does he bless the Lord, he praises the Lord. Not only does he praise the Lord, he boasts in the Lord. Not only does he boast in the Lord, he magnifies the Lord. Not only does he magnify the Lord, he exalts the Lord. He says that his soul makes its boast. Where? In the Lord. Because in the Lord, David is recognizing the source of his deliverance. And so he correctly responds to the source of his deliverance with the worship that that source, namely the Lord, deserves. But lest we think David only gave praise to God when God acted on his behalf in some miraculous deliverance, he mentions that he will bless the Lord when? At all times. Good and bad. And that God's praise would be in his mouth continually. Not just when things were going good. Now the circumstances in which David wrote these words were anything but good. But he was resolved, no matter what came, no matter how hard life got, no matter who betrayed or assaulted him, I will bless the Lord at all times. And his praise will continually be in my mouth. Not just in the good times when praise is easy. Not just when all seems right in the world, but when he's under threat. When it's hard, when it's uncertain, when it's painful. In the downs of life, in the trials, in the pains, in the afflictions, in the difficulties there. These are the kinds of all times that David speaks of and that he's talking about. Now, what's a connection to what David is doing here with what those who witnessed Christ's resurrection were doing? Well, we read it a little bit earlier. In Matthew's version of Jesus' resurrection, in Matthew 28, we read the following words. And behold, Jesus met them, this is after his resurrection, and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and what? Worshipped him. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. See, worship of Jesus was one of the responses to Jesus' own deliverance from death. How does that make a difference in someone's life? Let me tell you a story. There was a young man named Jordan Mong who was a lifelong atheist, and he was a political science major at Harvard University. In high school... Jordan's Christian friends would avoid talking to her about their faith because of her propensity to deconstruct their beliefs with her razor-sharp and cutting logic. And as a student at Harvard, Jordan continued as a religious skeptic, debating fellow students into the wee hours of the morning in defense of her position that religion was nothing more than a farce. Over time, however, the thoughtful responses from her Christian friends to her non-belief pressed her to start doubting her doubts. Increasingly, the way of Jesus made sense to her. And she considered the cross of Jesus in particular, and it was through the cross that Christianity became to her not only plausible, but beautiful. She wrote about this part of her journey. Here's what she said. She said, quote, This theme of love as sacrifice for the true good struck me. The cross no longer seemed a grotesque symbol of divine sadism, but a remarkable act of love. And Christianity began to look less strangely mythical and more cosmically beautiful. At the same time, I'd begun to read through the Bible and was confronted by my sin. I was painfully arrogant and prone to fits of rage. I was unforgiving and unwaveringly selfish. I passed sexual boundaries that I'd promised I wouldn't. The fact that I had failed to adhere to my own ethical standards filled me with deep regret. Yet I could do nothing to right these wrongs. The cross no longer looked merely like a symbol of love, but like the answer to my incurable need. Now notice what captivated her here. It wasn't merely that Christianity was true. It was that Christianity was beautiful. Worship 
became the response of Jordan to the message of the cross. Unless we think that just because Jordan experienced Christ as beautiful, that it didn't matter if it was true or not, she goes on to say the following, quote, But beauty and need do not make something true. I longed for the Bible to be true, but the intellectual evidence was still insufficient. So I plunged headlong into apologetics, devouring debates and books from many perspectives. I read the Quran and Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. I went through the skeptics' and annotated Bible and looked up Christian rebuttals to apparent contradictions. But nothing compared to the rich tradition of Christian intellect. I'd argued with my peers, but I'd never investigated the works of the masters, Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, Descartes, Kant, Pascal, Lewis. When I finally did, the only reasonable course of action was to believe the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I committed my life to Christ by being baptized on Easter Sunday, 2009. Never once did I have to sacrifice my intellect for my faith. When confronted with the overwhelming body of evidence I encountered, when, I, when facing down the living God, it was the only rational course of action. I came to Harvard seeking truth. Instead, he found me. Worship was what led Jordan to Christ. Now, how can we apply this response of worship to ourselves? Well, one of the reasons, dear ones, I would contend that we fail to worship continually and at all times is because we lack the humility necessary to do so. Look at verse 2. Let the humble hear and be glad. See, It's the humble alone who can be glad in God. A recovery of humility, a recognition of and reliance upon God is desperately needed in our time. A recent Wall Street Journal poll reported a precipitous decline in four key values that have marked American experience over the past 50 years. Patriotism, religious faith, having children, and caring about the community. In 1998... 70% of respondents said patriotism was very important. Today, it's 38. In 1998, 62% said the same about religion. Today, it's only 39. Having children, a drop from 59% to 30%. What about community involvement? From 62% to 27%. Sociologists and political theorists will point to various causes for these declines. They might blame economic downturns or pandemic or church scandals or political polarization or institutional distrust or the rise of social media. And surely all of those factors affect some of the American outlook. But from a theological perspective, what we're witnessing is both an expression of and an effect of sin, which is a loss of humility in the hearts of people. Sin shrivels the soul and it curves us in on ourselves. When in our pride and in our defiance of God and decadence, we turn from God to self, we alienate alienate ourselves not only from our maker, but also from those who are made in his image. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over him. The more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation, end quote. See, what the Wall Street Journal poll reveals is a curved-in expression of sin and selfishness in several areas. The loss of patriotism includes a loss of loyalty to anything beyond yourself. 
The loss of religion implies the disappearance, disappearance of significance beyond this present moment and your own life. The loss of community means we value the freedom that comes from being alone more than the mutual obligations that accompany sustained friendships. The loss of children means we're no longer able or willing to endure the distractions and burdens of raising and training a new generation because it would hinder our lifestyle. So here's the bottom line. When we fail to worship God, we will live with an atrophied heart. Rather than our view of life continuing to expand and expand to the size of God's grandeur and greatness, our perspective on life will shrink to the size of personal hopes and dreams or to the size of what is surrounding our physical world and what it has to offer. See, we will eat little of the true and satisfying food of God's greatness when we feed ourselves and stuff ourselves on the junk food of the temporary glories of creation. Because we won't be getting proper spiritual nutrition, we'll constantly be hungry, our spiritual muscles will shrink, and we'll be unable to live as God intended. We weren't made to find and express ourselves, to think freedom comes from cutting ourselves off from others as if our meaning and significance can be excavated from the deepest caverns of our own being. See, we were made not to look in first, but to look up first and then around to others. Now, the Wall Street Journal poll is distressing. It's depressing, but dear Christian, take heart. Through the gospel of Christ and his church, we learn to cultivate a loyalty to Christ that goes beyond the goodness of patriotism by helping us identify with all who pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ the Lord. We cultivate a genuine concern for the community by helping us find satisfaction, not in seeking to have all our needs met, but in pouring ourselves out to meet the needs of others. We cultivate a love for family and children, a desire to see the next generation carry forward the fire of God's love and grace by seeking to win them to Christ and adding to the number of those who confess the name of his son. We have all the resources we need in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to push back the darkness of pride that leads us to not worship God, but leads us rather to worship ourselves. That was David's first response, a response of worship. Because he was humble, because he recognized that his deliverance came from the Lord and the Lord alone, he praised him, he blessed him, he magnified him, he exalted him at all times continually. Secondly, second response to David being delivered from death was witness, was witness. Look at verses 3 to 7. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. See, he calls upon us to join him in praise by saying, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. He's calling upon those who are hearing him to do the same as he is doing. See, it's not enough for David to praise God by himself. He knows that such a great God deserves the worship and the praise of all people at all times. And so he gives witness. David gives a testimony in verses 4 to 7 that he hopes will elicit a response of worship in others. Now remember what happened? At the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
once he was delivered from death in the tomb, what immediately happened? Well, people began to speak about it. First, the women at the tomb went and told the disciples, we've seen the Lord. But John also wrote the resurrection account and really his entire gospel for the purpose of witness. This is how he summarizes it in John 20 and 21. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He wrote as a witness to testify to what he had experienced and seen and called upon others to join him in believing and following the Lord Jesus Christ. John said in John chapter 21, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things that we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's this kind of worship in the midst of distress that David had and the the disciples had that can be a powerful form of witness to someone. Let me give you another illustration of someone whose life was changed by a worshiping witness. Journalist, author, speaker, and staff writer for The New Yorker, Malcolm Gladwell. Gladwell had stepped away from his Christian upbringing for a more secular worldview and approach to life, but he returned to his childhood faith after observing a unique and otherworldly, what he said, inner power that he observed in Christians. He was doing research for his book on David and Goliath, and he visited with a man and a woman named Cliff and Wilma Dirksen. Now, Cliff and Wilma had just lost their daughter, Candace. She had been kidnapped, abducted, and murdered. What moved Malcolm Gladwell to return to his Christian roots was their response to a question that he asked them. His question, he said, we would like to know who the person or persons are. Or, Sorry, here's the question he asked them. How do you feel about whoever did this to Candace? And here was Cliff and Wilma's response. We would like to know who the person or the persons are so that we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. Our main concern was to find Candace. We found her. I can't say at this point I forgive this person, but we have all done something dreadful in our lives and have felt the urge to, or have felt the urge to. And in processing this stunning, this stunning response from two parents who had experienced such a dreadful and seemingly meaningless loss. Here's what Malcolm Gladwell wrote. He said, quote, Wilma's stress was on the phrase, at this point. When she said that, something happened to me while I was sitting in their garden. An otherwise very ordinary person in the backyard of a very ordinary house who has managed to do something utterly extraordinary. Their daughter was murdered, and the first things the Dirksons did was to stand up and talk about the path to forgiveness. And it was that response that led Malcolm Gladwell to reconsider the Christianity he had abandoned. Dear ones, is not witness an overflow of worship? You see what David did here, right? The order that he went in. I will bless the Lord at all times. Magnify the Lord with me. You know, I wonder if much of our evangelism problem, the reasons we don't speak of Christ more, is not because we're scared. It's because we don't worship God.
if you bless the Lord at all times, if your praise was continually in his mouth, if my praise, if his praise was continually in my mouth, would we not desire others to share in it? One writer remarked this way, there has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It has been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification, and yet it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. If one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout which is not lethal but life-giving. So maybe our evangelism problem is actually a worship problem. But we know where to fix it, don't we? By worshiping the Lord and seeing all again the greatness of our own deliverance from death. That's the second response. Worship, witness. Third response, wonder. Wonder. Having tasted and seen that the Lord is good and having experienced God's work in his own life, David now calls upon others to have the same wonder, to just marvel at who God is and what he's done. He says in verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Now maybe that's a word... For some of you here this morning. Maybe you know at an intellectual level. Or you've heard that God is good. But you've never tasted. Never seen that he is good. You've never experienced it. See David wants to tell you this morning. He said you heard about the meal. You heard about the meal I've eaten. I want you to eat that same meal. I want you to come to the table and eat this meal with me. I want you to experience God's protection and God's provision the way I have. He says in verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. I want you to experience God's provision in your life. And then he says, I want you to experience God's protection. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. Children, young ones. Here this morning, David has a word for you in verse 11. He says to the kids, O come, come, O children, listen to me. David doesn't want to leave you out. He wants to say, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I'll teach you what it means to follow God. Verse 12, what man is there or what child is there who desires life? Do you desire life? Yeah, of course you do. Do you love many days? Do you want to live into a great old age that you might see good in your life? says in verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit and turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. He says, children, I want you to know what it is to fear the Lord. And then Peter picks up these very words in Psalm 34 and talks about them in his letter in 1 Peter chapter 3. He quotes it verbatim and he applies it to us as Christians. And he says, I want you as God's people to be marked by controlled speech, by a transformed life, and by a passion for peace. Children, you're not too young to fear the Lord. You're not too young 
to learn the ways of God and to walk in them. And so David invites you this morning to taste and see that the Lord is good as well. Call upon the Lord. Ask him to save you. Ask him, worship him as God. Spend time, kids, just in prayer, worshiping God, thanking God, expressing gratitude to God, praising him for all the blessings that have come into your life, thanking him for the gospel, rehearsing the gospel in his presence, acknowledging your need for it. Do what David tells you to do here. Bless the Lord at all times. Let his, let, let his praise be continually in your mouth. And see what the Lord does in your life through that. You know, this sort of wonder also captured the early disciples' attention in the resurrection account of Luke. In Luke twenty four twelve, we read, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, what? Marveling at what had happened. He was struck with wonder. He was amazed. And similarly, when Jesus interacted with the two men on the road to Emmaus, what did they say at the conclusion of that exchange in verse 32 of Luke 24? They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? (laughs) They were gripped with wonder. Now what if I told you that you live in a world of wonder right now? You don't have to go to the cinemas and watch the next Marvel movie to be captured by it. CGI can capture some wonders. But what if I told you that there's a story that corroborates Jesus' resurrection and it comes from a source so trustworthy that you can see it with your own eyes every day? Say, I'd believe in the resurrection of Jesus if I could see it with my own eyes. You wake up in a resurrection world every day. And if you have eyes to see it, God has implanted in this world a resurrection narrative over and over and over and over again. It's been staring you in the face your entire life. God has woven the resurrection into the fabric of his creation. Would you wonder with me for a moment? When you lay your head on your pillow every night, what happens? You go to sleep. You become dead to the world. Your consciousness leaves you. You enter into a place of darkness and solitude. You're lying flat on your back or side and... Your eyes are closed. You're like a corpse. Then comes the morning. Your eyes begin to flutter. Your body and your mind begin to stir back to life. And you rise. If we believe God designed our bodies with the utmost intentionality, why did he design us to sleep? Part of it's because we're finite and we're not him. But another part of it is because he wanted you to experience resurrection every day. Any doctor or scientist could tell you the numerous benefits of bodies get from sleep, but God the creator could have given us those benefits by any number of methods. But he chose sleep. Why did he create a resurrection parable to attend us every 24 hours? Maybe because resurrection is the point of the world. Why did he create us to be functionally lifeless for a third of our lives? Could it be that in the daily cycle of sleeping and waking, God is reminding us as his children again and again, resurrection isn't a fantasy, friends. It's not a tall tale. Okay, maybe you're not convinced by that. Why did God give us seasons? Say they're the result of the fall. 
in part. But why did he design the earth with the tilted rotation and orbit and proximity to the sun in such a precise way that it gives us an annual death-to-life cycle? Why do trees and plants wither and die in the fall and lie dormant, in many cases buried in the grave or the dirt, in the winter only to burst forth out of the ground and out of barren branches with new life in the spring? Why does the bear go into a cave to hibernate and then resurface at winter's end? Why does the sun disappear below the horizon each night and reappear the following day, spreading warmth and light into the darkness? Why do so many deaths in nature like forest fires and floods and decaying plants and animals actually create idle conditions for the generation of new life? Why does the caterpillar bury itself in a cocoon and come out a butterfly? Why does the acorn go into the ground and come out an oak tree? Why is it that when a baby is born into this world, it must emerge from the depths of the womb? All these questions from God's creation are pointing to an answer. Resurrection. And that answer is no accident. Again, for those of you who are here, we've all tasted the appetizers of God's goodness. But if you're not yet a Christian, have you ever looked up at the sky? Have you ever been hugged? Have you ever sat in front of a warm fire? Have you ever walked in the woods, sat by a lake, laid in a summer hammock? Have you ever drunk your favorite drink on a hot day or eating anything good? Every desire that you experience is either a devout or a distorted enticement to the glory of heaven. You've tasted God's goodness in the form of appetizers. Go to the meal. Go to God himself. You have seen the shadows. He is calling you to the substance. You have walked in the warm rays of his sun. Turn and look on the sun himself. You have heard the echoes of God's glory everywhere. Tune your heart to the original music. The Apostle Peter alludes to this when he says that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good in 1 Peter 2.3 and that Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 34.8, taste and see that the Lord is good. That Lord is, is the Lord Jesus Christ, the 1 Peter 2.3. I invite you to taste and see that he is. Fourthly, his final response, worship Witness, wonder, wisdom. Wisdom. In addition to his own worship of God and his witness to others and his expression of wonder, he wants all of this to serve. David wants all this to serve as a source of wisdom for us. He wants people to not only hear of what has happened to and for him, but he wants us to experience the same deliverance for ourselves. In other words, he wants the reality of his worship and the testimony of his witness to result in the experience of wisdom of what he is saying by those who are hearing him say it. And that includes us this morning. In verses 15 to 22, we get this wisdom spelled out. And David serves it up by way of contrast between the destinies of those who follow the Lord and the destinies of those who don't. He says God listens to the prayers of his people, but not those who aren't in verses 15 and 17. He says God is for his people, but against those who do evil. He says God will preserve the memory of the righteous, but will erase the memory of the evil from the earth in verse 16. The Lord is near to his brokenhearted people. And by implication, he's removed from his proud enemies in verse 18. 
The Lord delivers His people out of all their afflictions. He redeems the lives of His people and He frees them from all condemnation in verses 19 and 20. While those who aren't His people will be slain in their affliction and condemned in their unrighteousness in verses 21 and 22. Now it's this very response of wisdom that David is calling forth from his from the people that are hearing this psalm that we see in Mark's account of the resurrection. The resurrection is meant to teach us something. It's not just meant to show us a fact, to reveal history to us, but it's meant to teach. Notice what Mark 16, 7 and 8 says. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's a unique response to the resurrection. Fear? Why fear? Their whole world has just been shaken up. All their preconceptions are undone. The implication of this news has come crashing down on them with a weight that could only be described as demanding a complete redirection of their lives. What does this mean? (laughs) And they're afraid. What it can mean is a glorious future. John Sinek knew it. John Sinek was a man who was born in 1718, the youngest of seven children. He was born into a Christian family in England. Now, he had rebelled and run wild in his early teens and no doubt experienced much of the afflictions of the unrighteous that David talks about here in Psalm 34. But when he was 19 years old, we hear about the following. Quote, it was an ordinary church service and the great illumination occurred through the application of a healing word from God. On Sunday, September 6th, 1737, the psalm for the day was Psalm 34. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. They sang that psalm that morning. It wasn't preached on. They sang Psalm 34. And no sooner had the singing ended than John Sinek says that his burden was lifted from his soul and he found a glad deliverance in the Lord Jesus Christ. An ordinary church service in 1737 in England singing Psalm 34 in a, on a September day and a 19-year-old man gave his life to Christ. I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will continually be in my mouth. Dear brother, sister in Christ, I want to conclude with this application for us. Do you think Psalm 34 overpromises and underdelivers? I mean, is he really going to deliver us out of all of our distresses and troubles? Really? And don't read into that, it all has to happen now in this life. That, that's not what it says. Some of you will live with the afflictions you're experiencing now for the rest of your life. But you won't always experience them. You're going to get a resurrection body. It's true for our brother Derek. It's true for Wesley. It's true for all of us. We've got a new body coming. 
the Lord delivers us out of all of our afflictions. Through God's goodness to you, and his goodness to you will not always feel good. But that doesn't mean it's not good. And that doesn't mean that God isn't good towards you. You know that as parents, don't you? God's goodness will take many different forms, but all the plans are coordinated in one direction. Your everlasting joy in his presence. How do we know that's going to happen? How do we know that the Lord is going to deliver us out of all of our afflictions? How do we know that that those who take refuge in him will never be condemned? Because of verse 20. Look at verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Do you see how that lands right in the middle of all this description about what's going to happen? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Verse 21 or verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. How do we know? How do we? Is this just hope so, wish so, pray so? No, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That's the other all in this verse that guarantees the other alls. What am I saying? The Lord delivers us out of all of our afflictions. The Lord redeems the life of all of his servants because he keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Where do we hear that verse? Again in scripture. John nineteen thirty six. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. What are they talking about? Jesus on the cross. And his bones were not broken on the cross as would normally be done in a crucifixion. Why would they break people's bones? Well, in a crucifixion, you hung on the cross and you died of asphyxiation. You died of getting tired of lifting yourself up to breathe. Well, Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit. But why would they break his bones? If, well, if the crucifixion kept going on and the people didn't die, they took a large instrument, maybe a bat, and they cracked the legs of the person and broke them so that they would no longer be able to lift themselves up and they would just hang there and die quickly. That did not happen to Christ on the cross. He gave up his spirit to the Father before that was ever necessary. And it was to fulfill Psalm 34. See, if we just read Psalm 34 as David's experience, and we just read Psalm 34 as our experience, we miss the whole point of Psalm 34. The point of Psalm 34 is Jesus is coming back from death. He is and will bless the Lord continually. He will praise him with his own mouth. He will have his soul delivered from death. He will be rescued from the hands of his enemies. He will have his face made radiant and shining in glory because, and he will not be ashamed. Verse 6, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. You know who that poor man was? Christ Jesus on the cross cried out 
and the Lord heard him and saved him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. They encamped around his tomb on Resurrection Sunday morning and they said, done with death, out with you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He raised his son from the dead. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry. Boy, were they ever. When they, when he heard the voice of Christ calling from the cross, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. You remember any names of any people who crucified him? I don't. You remember his name? Forever. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Was the not Lord, was not the Lord near to our man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief? Did his heart not break in the garden and on the cross for us? And did God not save him and re- release him from being crushed in spirit? Did not the Lord redeem the life of his servant? Yes, he did. And dear ones, because Jesus' life was redeemed because Jesus was saved from death. Because Jesus' bones weren't broken and God didn't save him from death. This means that God may not protect us from every bad thing that might, has, or could happen to us. But ultimately, because Christ's bones weren't broken, ultimately because he was raised from the dead, you are safe. You will walk through death And come out on the other side fully healed, restored, saved, and protected. God does not protect us from all the things that might harm us. But he does protect us as we go through them. To the other side. Into the resurrection. Where our real hopes and our real happiness lie. And this was all secured. Because not one of his bones was broken. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to bless you at all times, especially this morning. We want your praise to be in our mouths. We thank you that this group, this church of poor sinners cried out to you and you saved us out of all of our troubles. You saved us out of our biggest trouble, sin and death. And you continue to save us out of lesser troubles. And you will save us out of all of our troubles. And we thank you that we can respond and worship and wander and witness that we can respond in wisdom, in learning to follow you more closely and fear you and treasure you and love you and taste and see that you're good and know and express continually our gratitude for who you are and what you've done. And we want to do that now as we turn to song. Fill our hearts with praise, fill our mouths with worship and let us go from here as those who, who can say with our own mouths, this poor one, sought the Lord, and he delivered me out of all of my troubles. I sought the Lord, and he heard my cry. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for hearing our cries. Thank you for saving our Savior, for rescuing him from death, for bringing him out of the grave, and giving us hope that we too, who are joined to him, will never experience eternal death. We pray all this in the name of our risen Savior and King, Christ Jesus.